0: amen yeah amen well like i said thank you for being gracious today as i kind of cough through this sermon um i ask your forgiveness ahead of time what an interesting story right uh the sermon title this morning is uh, artemis fowl and that's like f- uh flagrant violence okay that's not like birds like f-o-w-l instead it's something uh nasty you know There's two major themes we're going to be looking at, but first, let me tell you a bit of a running joke in our family. It revolves around Mick Jagger, of all people. Uh, Our kids will always want something, you know, will be in the car or something, and most of the time, the wants center around, you know, like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A and begging for something, anything other than the Burt Cafe, you know? And, uh, and, and so there we are, and often our kids are asking, and they're getting each other fired up, you know, a riot is ensuing in the car about like, oh, yeah, we should eat out, we could do this. And um, me and Brittany uh, had, uh, you know, we'll say, hold on, guys, hold on, and our kids will know that this is something that we've done multiple times. And um, we'll get on Amazon Music, and we'll say, hold on, guys, we have an answer for you. And we'll go to that Rolling Stones 1969 hit song, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And I'll press play, you know, it's got that awesome London choir recording of the first verse in it, you know, I'll just ease the volume up to answer their question, you know. The car just gets filled with eye rolls, you know, Dad, oh, come on, you know, like, just give in. There was wisdom in that uh, decade-ending ballad, you know, that was written in 1969 after our uh, country spent that whole 10 years uh, just a lot of chaos going on. And coming to a conclusion, uh, Jagger sings, no, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need, you know? And a lot of people had a lot of different interpretations of that. This morning's message, you know, titled, as I told you, Artemis Fowl, it deals with two major themes that we're gonna look at. It deals with personal providence, and then secondly, the powerful persuasion that was going on in Ephesus. And I bring up our friend Mick Jagger and this idea about, you know, you can't always get what you want because when it comes to this passage, I'm gonna hopefully show you, especially in the first point, that, you know, God is always accomplishing his will. God always gets what he wants. And the way that God goes about getting what he wants it does work in tandem often with uh, the, the will uh, of his people. But sometimes God's people that want to do something and have it revealed you know, to them, as Paul gets revealed you know, to him in this passage, they want to do that. They don't really see how they're gonna get what they want. And uh, you know, there's always a temptation when you can't have exactly what you want that you keep trying. And eventually you get you know, discouraged possibly. But I think that what you'll see here is that God is able in Ephesus, in this example to Paul, to bring about all of this chaos that we see in the text. None of it takes God by surprise. It definitely takes Paul and the Ephesian church by surprise in some ways. But ultimately, we're going to see that they even begin to realize that if they didn't get what they wanted in the exact timing that they wanted it, they got what they needed. And they had what they needed the whole way through. That's something that me and you need. We need the confidence in following Christ in the church today. We need the confidence to know what scripture says, want, we should want what scripture says happens, and then we should trust God with when or how that thing comes about. One thing I've found all the time is that when I make a plan that I believe honors God and I try to set forth in it, I'm hoping that you know I get what, what I want And I've noticed, and if you have been a Christian for very long, you probably have noticed this in your life too, (coughs) that we make a plan, anticipate it to go this way biblically, and then oftentimes it goes a different way. And we ask ourselves, is God able to use this? Is he using this? Does it make sense for me to stay the course and do what I'm supposed to do? It seems so chaotic. It seems so hard to trust him at this turn. And time and time again, God shows me in time that he was working things out from the very beginning. Oftentimes what people meant for evil, God would use and he would use it for good. And so the conclusion of this sermon is Romans 8, 28. That verse is clear. God does work together, you know, all the things, all the things in our lives. If we are called according to his purpose, if we love him, he works them all together for what? For our good and for his glory. Well, that's what's going on in this riot in Ephesus. Why the Rolling Stones? Well, the Stones were sages of the '60s. They they wrote and people listened by the masses in a decade in our country where human history was known for you know listening uh, due to drug abuse and awful sins. Those were the, the the culture that the Stones tried to speak a little bit of worldly wisdom into. I want to show you this morning how much more is there wisdom for the Christian who can say, I may not always get what I want, but in time, if I try to see clearly what the word teaches, I might find I do have what I need. Well, Spoiler, the Stones, are uh, they only faked hope to listeners. Nobody got hope from that ballad at the end of the summer of 1969, and the 70s and 80s and 90s proved to be far worse anyway, Uh, but here's what we can do. Me and you can study something this morning that can give us contentment to see that we can make a plan according to God's word, and then we can trust God in any season. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think there's two main themes that I want to trace out this morning with you. The first is the personal providence personal providence that's seen in this passage. And then secondly, a powerful persuasion that's going on, okay? So first point, let's talk about the personal providence. You may have missed the importance of verses 21 and 22. It's like after those verses... The story gets pretty crazy, as you heard our brother read. Right? It's pretty wild and out. And you may have like forgotten twenty-one and twenty-two, at least in regards to their, you know, their excitement. Honestly, Paul seems to have forgotten verses twenty-one and twenty-two as well in the story, because later on in verse thirty, he's trying to rush into the amphitheater, right, where it's like certain that this riot is going to possibly kill him. So he has to have his own disciples uh, and some others. We're going to see really get him to see. Hold on a second. Let's not put, you know, our cart before God who is pulling this thing through. I want us to see the personal providence of God working in in the Apostle Paul's life. Look in, you know, again, 21 and 22. As our brother read, you know, it says that Paul resolved in the spirit. Do you see that in verse 21? Capital S there. The purpose that God's own spirit has for Paul is subtly brought into the picture in this story. Um, Paul must go to Jerusalem. Now, that is opposite of the direction from Rome, mind you, which is where he ultimately must go. That's what that verse was saying, right? Paul has seen in this vision, or at least in this understanding of of the spirit of God, giving him a clear understanding of what his life is supposed to be, you know, trajectory-wise doing, he's gonna end up in Rome, But first, Jerusalem is quite literally uh, the opposite where they're at there in Ephesus. Now, how will he get there, right? I mean, verse 21 and 22 kind of ask the question, well, how is Paul gonna, having concluded this time in Ephesus, gonna get to Jerusalem and eventually Rome? How's that gonna happen? And that's uh, the interest of the rest of the book of Acts is right here uh, in these first couple of verses. We stand on this end of the book of Acts, don't we, as the reader, and Luke knows that. And that's a great benefit to us at this point, because we know the way the story ends. <coughs> Excuse me. We know that Paul will in fact follow uh, this exact route that's right here in these verses. The book of Acts Uh, from here forward uh, is explained. You know, the point is God knew before Paul or before Luke or before Timothy or Erastus or even Caesar himself ever knew. God knew for his own glory and for the good of his church and his people that this is exactly what would happen. Paul will inevitably be there. God knows this. There is personal providence for Paul working in unseen and unbelievable ways in this passage. And that's what I wanna show you. We're privileged to study it on this side of it, and we, therefore, need to really understand it and apply it, apply it today. Let me show you a few of these things. Let me show you Paul's, uh, the personal providence that's going on in connection to verses one and two. Now, first, God uses uh, a few things in this passage, and all of them, most of them, are evil. (laughs) So, for instance, look at this guy, Demetrius. You heard the story read. You can see it there. I won't waste our time rereading the verses, but... God uses Demetrius' evil idolatry to accomplish his will. Question, does Demetrius have any desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advance to Rome through Paul's ministry? Easy answer, right? Absolutely not. Demetrius doesn't care in the slightest if Paul leaves Ephesus, goes to Jerusalem, and ends up at Rome. Like the Spirit has said, expressly is going to happen. Demetrius doesn't care, right? I mean, he's a straight hater, like 100%. We see, and we're gonna see in our second point uh, some more about him, but in short, we can say the exact opposite is true about Demetrius. Every bit of his desire is actually to hope that Paul's gospel ministry will end today, right? In this story, it will end this moment. Yet, yet, brothers and sisters, get this, despite Demetrius's evil idolatry and his hatred for the way, which is Christianity. He is a key ingredient in God providentially moving Paul on from Ephesus. Do you see that? Okay, second. So God uses Demetrius' as evil, but second, here's another thing about personal providence in this passage. God uses the stupid rioters to accomplish his will. Now listen, some of you kids just perked up because I said stupid. Um, You know, we don't say stupid in our house most of the time, and that is good. And so I'm here to tell you today, if that's your rule, it's a good rule. However, the Bible says clearly in Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, the one who hates correction, and it has in view God's correction, is stupid, is stupid. You see, if you know what is right, and if you know what God has revealed to be right, if you have been shown what God says is right and you don't do it, you end up looking stupid. Right? You end up choosing stupid choices. Question, do the rioters in Ephesus, in this story, do they have any desire to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance to Rome through Paul? Another easy answer, right? No way. No way. They don't. I mean, in a really comical way, I think Luke shows us that half of them don't even know why they're there. Did you hear that when it was read? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, they're just the, the rabble. They're just the people that are just standing around waiting. And it's like, you know, hey, you want, you want to go to the amphitheater and you want to throw a riot? Yeah, sure. I'll come scream about Artemis for a while. All right? These are worthless people that have no desire except just to join in the chaos. And it's kind of funny. Half of them don't even know why they're there later. And it's just building on this, what is all of this chaos, all of this ambiguity? What is it about? Well, listen, they don't care about the gospel going to Rome. Yet despite Demetrius and his idolatry, despite stirring up this rabble to be just really stupid rioters, despite all that in opposition to Paul, God is working amidst this chaos. Now, quick note here before we move on. I, even Paul at this point, I think, seems to be forgetful of what God had said clearly to him in the spirit. Let me show you. Excuse me. Notice, and I think this is here. Here, this is in his own own spirit, lowercase, okay? He decides to rush in. Did you see that? Look at verse 30 and 31 again. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So here's Paul who knew that God had made it expressly clear to him in a vision. You're to go to Jerusalem. My plan is for you to go to Rome to bear witness for me, right? Paul's like, I don't know how it's going to happen, right? We don't know how it's going to happen, maybe. But then he goes on living. And yet later on in the story, the riot, Demetrius, all this evil, it just seems to draw Paul in. And Paul's not thinking about Rome. Paul's thinking, even if they kill me, there's Thousands of people assembled. And by the way, we know historically, you can go to Ephesus today, you can stand in this place. It sat 25 to 30,000 people. You can see this amphitheater today. And the whole city of Ephesus is out there chanting. Now, Paul should not go in there thinking, this is God's will for me. I'm gonna be killed you know, here because he probably would have been torn limb from limb. But I want you to see that you know sometimes we get caught up Right? Even if we have great intentions, we get caught up in things and neglect or ignore, because we feel a certain way, what God has called us to do. And so Paul's been, it's been clear, yet he wishes to go among the crowd. What do the disciples do? They stop him. Look at the next verse. And even some of the Asiarchs. So listen, it's like Paul wouldn't listen to the disciples. Even Luke says, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. Asiarchs are likely other leaders, political leaders, people that because he's been two years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, he's made you know friends with lost people. They know where he stands regarding what you know is and is not the gospel, but they're charitable enough to have a relationship with Paul. They're benefiting from Paul being there in a lot of ways, right? And so there's these friends, non believers, that, that that come, they sent to him urging him. Do not get in the way of this crowd. I think that's amazing. And I know it's a side note, but I think if we were to translate Luke here, I think Luke's kind of saying, look, this fool won't listen to the Spirit, capital S, to his disciples, or even now secular rulers that have to come in. Finally, he listens. So Paul doesn't go in there, and the story gets to continue. Now, they would have torn Paul limb from limb more than likely. But that doesn't get him out of Ephesus to make it to Rome, does it? I mean, I want you to see, like first, God used this pagan Demetrius, his love for idols. God used this very stupid rioters that are not thinking at all. They're just doing what they want to do. And even Paul gets caught up in it, and yet he's he's saved from it because God is providentially providing. Look at thirdly, God... Uses a local politician to accomplish his will. Let me ask you a question. Does the town clerk that you heard, is our brother Red, does that elected official, does he want Paul's gospel message to go all the way to Rome, to Caesar, and to the leaders of the world at that time when he stands up to calm down the crowd? Another easy answer. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's actually the opposite worry, right? The opposite worry makes this man begin to speak to the crowd. The last thing he wants is Rome hearing about a riot that has any you know, resemblance of something like Christianity, which says Caesar's not a god, but that, you know, there is one true God. Basically, this guy wants nothing to do with anything that looks like it could put Ephesus in a bad way with Rome. He's quite literally the opposite thinker, right? I mean, he, he wants nothing to do with a guy like Paul being in Rome and he certainly doesn't want Rome coming to investigate a guy like Paul. So, I mean, totally not caring about the gospel. Yet, hear me, despite Demetrius and these stupid rioters and now this slick politician of their day suggesting that they take the gospel to court instead of, you know, doing this riot, amidst all that, God is working a perfect plan to get his servant Paul out of the city of Ephesus and moving on with the gospel's advancement. After all this, they're dismissed in verse 41. They don't go to the courts, right? Uh, And look at the start of chapter 20, verse one again. After that uproar ceased, Paul was able, what was he able to do? To send for the disciples, to encourage them. It says, after encouraging them, He said farewell. And where did he depart from or for? For Macedonia. I want you to see this because in verse 21 where it says that he must pass through Macedonia and Achaia, go to Jerusalem, saying after that, I must see Rome. What the Spirit of God says happens in our our text this morning, right here in 20 uh, verse 1. Paul does depart and it's for the first stop on what the Spirit has said is to be done. There is our answer as to how God would get Paul out of Ephesus. It wasn't what he expected, was it? It was not what Paul wanted. I mean, Paul normally has a whole different plan in mind about how to leave a church established. We've seen that. And that gets that gets completely done on its head with this riot. And Paul only has a few moments with some young disciples that are eventually, you know, the elders that he addresses in the next chapter. But they come to him and there's this fondness of Paul that Paul was knowing he was supposed to eventually be in Rome, but he didn't know how he was going to get there. He would have picked probably some other normal way to do it, but not this way. And yet this was the way that God sovereignly was doing it. Paul resolved to trust God He was tempted to not trust God in the chaos. He did not succumb to the temptation. He didn't go into the crowd. And he was allowed the chance to then look after the disciples there before departing. This is providence. What you see in this story, this is the hope that we must have today as the church reading this passage. Make it very clear in application for us this morning. You and me as Christians should resolve ourselves in the spirit. We should be resolved in the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God has expressly said in the Word of God. We should. We should be resolved as Paul is resolved. Now, granted, this is an apostolic vision, okay? The way God is uh, you know, communicating to Paul where he should even go regarding like his next days and months' travels, right? God does not speak with such clarity now as to you as he did to the apostles, He was doing it for a certain purpose in them, hence the apostolic signs see last week's sermon, right? But for for the purpose of applying this to our lives today in the church, we should absolutely grab the resolve of the apostle and grab up these precious words in the Bible and be resolute, unmoving in our commitment to saying, let the will of God and his word be done in my life. You should want it. You should want the gospel like Paul wanted Rome. You should want the word like Paul wants Rome, okay? And the spirit will always join you in your efforts to love God in his word. But how will you get there? How will you get to the fulfillment of what it means to be one who looks to the word and everything? Well, the implications of this for me and you are really hands-on, aren't they? I mean, when the Bible tells me, love thy neighbor as thyself, surely you see all the opportunities to rush into the amphitheater of your own way, calling love for neighbor something that God doesn't call it. And you should see these temptations in your life and guard against them. God says, love my neighbor. If I don't make time for my neighbor, Maybe I'm rushing into the amphitheater of disobedience instead of sitting for a while with what God wants to say about my schedule. I mean, there's a million applications, right? I want to love God and his word. And so I will discipline my life according to his word. And so what Christian is there that can spend weeks and weeks and weeks away from reading God's word and yet demand clarity when something difficult shows up in their life? We must read the word, right? We got to be tethered to it. What's amazing about Paul is like, dude is in the spirit, has this vision clear as day. Sometime later, the, the, the ruckus being stirred up, it stirred up in his heart good things. He's like, I don't want to see, you know, these other followers of Jesus, disciples that God's used me to make. I don't want to see them dragged before this assembly and hurt. I want, let, let them have me. I mean, what a good motivation, right? He's like, let him have me instead. And, insta- and, and when he won't listen to what the, the word has said to the spirit, who's there for him? This young church. The disciples, they come to him and they say, hold on, are you committing an error? If you wanna know how to get to Rome, right? To be mature as a man and a woman in Christ, I'm saying to you this morning, tether yourself to the word. And be sensitive when you break those, those, those tetherings and by conviction, repent, trust Jesus. Look to the one who has died in your place, rose again, and his act of obedience can become yours by faith. Also, I'm saying that sometimes you get past that word-centeredness in your own life. Be ready to listen to other disciples that are coming alongside you before you run off into the amphitheater of your sin and they say, hey, hold on a second. Hold on, maybe you shouldn't go in there. And I don't know if there's an application for the third, but maybe even if you get so far away from listening to God, maybe even secular friends like the Asiarchs, God will use everything. I mean, go ask Balaam in the Old Testament what God will use, right? He will use whatever he needs to use uh, to get your attention. And that's our God. And that's providence at work. You can't always get what you want, but God always gets what he wants. That should be a comfort to you and me. That should be a comfort to you and me that we might learn to fight to get everything that we need. When a, when a Christian has everything they need, which is you know, Christ himself and the word and what it means to, to be fulfilled in that, when you have that, there's nothing else that can be taken from you. You have joy. You have the fruit of the spirit. You have everything that is needed for life and godliness. You have it. It is yours. And so there is great confidence. Right? So I hope you see there's a personal providence here in Paul's life. And in a lot of ways, it should and could be translated into ours. I think our takeaway, though, should be to study God's word, to submit ourselves to one another, right? And to be be willing to see that sometimes what we want doesn't happen quickly. Or it doesn't happen the way we want it to. But Paul does leave Ephesus, does he not? He does leave it, and that's the whole point of this, of, this, of this passage. Now, what was going on in this city? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. Our second point today is this. Powerful persuasion. Well, check it out. Right beside the personal providence of Paul that Luke is recording that, that you need to see uh, is a strong argument for how to reach a city with the gospel. And I want to see that with you. So... <coughs> stringing verse 21 and 23 together. uh, I want you to look at your Bibles again. Let's do that in a way that now looks past the providence of God in Paul's plan uh, to see something else. So it says, now after these events, that's how our passage starts, right? Well, remember, that's talking about the Sons of Sceva incident that's happened and the two years of faithful preaching and teaching uh, and mighty works Paul's done, okay? After these events, now verse 23, about that time, There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, we need to take notice here of how these Christians, led by Paul, reached Ephesus. But I want to point out to you first what they did not do. You know, they did not, as Christians in Ephesus, major in the minors as some sort of culture warrior for Christ, declaring judgment on all sin. Uh, with God's truth. You know, today people in the name of Christ are more concerned with telling sinners what they cannot do very loudly, right? Than they are telling uh, sinner, uh, sinners what Christ has done on their behalf so they would stop doing those things. And Paul and them, we're going to learn from a few of these things that tell in these writers' words here. Paul and them are, are not. Uh, picketing for the sake of Jesus outside of the Artemision, this giant temple. That's not their MO, and it hasn't been. They're not the Westboro Baptists of the 2000s putting together against every hot topic of culture some delivered judgment. They're not the Church of Wales standing at the 4th of July here in Nacogdoches saying right things in a wrong and ugly, angry heart. They're, none of that is present and has been present in Ephesus. What has been present in Ephesus is the opposite. They're not in Ephesus. Paul's not putting together the social media post of his day, working countless hours on their versions of Internet in the, in the place there to just come up with some wonderful toppling argument of Christian doctrine to, you, know, destroy the false teachings of the day. Paul had rhetoric. Right, But it wasn't a rhetoric that talked in a violent way as if to meet the violence of the idols of the day with a greater violence. Paul had none of those things. Like we do. You know, today, many Christians, uh, and, if, and if in Ephesus, you know, if they were in Ephesus, I think a lot of, of, of what people are calling evangelism or are calling meeting their city's needs, a lot of people who want to say truth, but they fail to say it in love, I think a lot of people today, if they were to show up in Ephesus, they would start melting these little silver shrines of Artemis. They'd melt them down into bracelets for Jesus. Give me all those and we'll destroy them and make something new and we'll transform what is this idolatry. And Paul's just not interested in that. He's not trying to go after in this angry sense. No, turn the page in your Bible and look at chapter 20. Look at verse 18 through 20. Paul, reflecting on what he did in Ephesus, tells the new installed elders of the church in Ephesus. He tells them exactly the way he went about doing gospel ministry in the city. Verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And that's talking about Ephesus and the surrounding area. Serving the Lord with all, make note of this, humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have said repentance from dark magic and evil worship of demons, but he didn't. He said repentance, which does include turning from those things, sure, toward something greater, toward God and faith. Paul wasn't running around seeking to condemn specific wickedness to create a platform so that others could join in to, to continue to condemn specific wickedness in Ephesus. That wasn't his MO. He had been found doing and the, the town clerk is, is probably the greatest example in our text to show what I'm talking about here, right? The town clerk comes in and deals with the lies of Demetrius. Demetrius is trying to say that Paul is, is doing what I'm saying he's not doing and what, what, what he gets proven even here from the lips of a true non-believer, a real, a real non-biased person in this town leader, right? Demetrius has said, hey, he is showing up and saying that gods made with human hands are not gods at all. Now, was Paul saying that? Probably. He probably was. But was he just outright, you know, Westboro Baptist style every day, yelling, screaming, just, you know, no. Paul's through humility, through tears, like he wants to be at your dinner table, urging you to consider Jesus and turn from the worship of Artemis. That's Paul. He's house to house. He's day in, day out, reasoning. He's persuading. And it's powerful. It's so powerful. It's like like he knew that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And so he's all about it. He's about God's kindness and about God's love. And yes, he is unapologetic about the fact that when you know the one true living God, you will give up something that you ascribe to be your God. You will stop worshiping creation and you will find hope in the creator. That is a part of his message. But Demetrius is wrong. And who comes to Paul's defense to show that? Some, literally a non-believing elect of the city, right? This official who says, we can't even find these guys guilty of blasphemy. So look all you want, but you will not find Paul, the, the culture warrior, tearing down every single, you know, Inkling of, of something that you know looks like a monstrous you know false evil or whatever. That's not Paul. Paul is instead saying there's a lot of issues that idolatry produces, but they're all finding their ultimate submission in Jesus. Do you know Jesus? I, I see that you love Artemis. Let me tell you about this one true living God, uh, brother and sister. What did they do to reach the city? Remember the context of our passage. You know we're in Ephesus with the Apostle Paul, all right? This is a guy who who is a church planter among the Gentiles extraordinaire. Some people say this is the greatest missionary that ever lived, okay? So apostle, missionary, Paul, used by God in a way that none of us ever will be because we're not an apostle in this establishing age of the church. Yet, check this out, the plan for reaching Ephesus and all of its idol worshiping, which we've seen, remember the last two sermons, right? Right? all of its vainglory, how did God do it? Have a man post up for almost three years right next to wickedness. Get as close to wickedness as you could and then just preach steadily the word of God, right? Paul's not dropping a nuke uh, and blowing up the Artemisian. Paul is sitting there next to it with a hammer and he's just hammering that temple, right? Piece by piece with the word of God. And Artemis, great among the Ephesians, disappeared in her greatness. So much so that people notice. Now listen, if you got to see a plan, see this. There's nothing flashy, nothing progressive, nothing showy. There's just faithful Bible teaching for like two years. Coupled with faithful discipleship, because he's, he's sending people out from the Hall of Tyrannus for two years, planting all these other churches around, And a faithful commitment to telling anyone and everyone about the hope of the gospel. That's their plan. That's it. That that was the plan for Ephesus. And I heard Alistair Begg talking about this passage this week. And uh, he just said, imagine how Demetrius gets the way he gets. And I loved what Alistair kind of taught. He said, you know, and this is some context, you know, the Artemisian temple, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So literally thousands of people coming to Ephesus as tourists. And what do you do when you go somewhere? You buy a little souvenir, right? You buy a little silver shrine. Now, in this day, they're not just coming because of, you know, just to get their favorite Mickey Mouse cup. Like, they're actually ascribing faith and worship to this goddess, Artemis, right? And she became the goddess of a lot of things, fertility and, you know, a lot of immorality, but mainly business. If you had Artemis on your, back of your t-shirt back in, in Ephesus, you were getting good business, Okay? And what's crazy is, and, and, I, and I love it, that more than likely, because of Paul's plan to just preach the gospel and love people, the sales began to dip for the silversmith Demetrius. In other words, the guy, people aren't buying as many of these things anymore. And I love, I love uh, what, what Alistair Beck said. He said, you know, it's kind of like you know, imagine Demetrius sends his top salesman to investigate, you know, why you know, a business in town, a business that always buys like a hundred silver statues around that time of the year. Why they didn't put that order in again. And the businessman goes in there and meets, you know, the, the, the man and the woman who are, you know, the married couple that run this business. And he says, hey guys, I'm, I'm here to check out. Why didn't you order a hundred more like you normally, you know, do to give to your employees? Like, what's up with that? Only to hear this couple say, well, you know, like we thought this year that we would instead just buy, buy, buy some books. You know, buy a book because, because we have come to realize there is one true living God and that, that God has sent Jesus of Nazareth to die and rise for our sins and we trust him. And we just thought it'd be better to have our employees understand this year, you know, we're gonna purchase for them some of these, these books, some of these writings instead. And that salesman goes back to Demetrius and he's like, hey, I, I don't know what happened with this order, but like they're probably not gonna ever order again. Now, that's conjecture, but I want you to understand something that I think is helpful in envisioning it this way. There wasn't violent protest that brought the gospel to the city of Ephesus. The violent protest actually tries to get the gospel out of the city. Instead, what was, what was done greatly uh, to the city of Ephesus was it was weakened on this foundational level. I mean, here was someone devout to Artemis, now no longer devout. The idea is this, the gospel is good news, right? It's good news, not violence. Uh, The gospel is that violence that that we deserve that should have been done to us, it was done violently to God's son in the place of unworthy sinners. God's elect children whom he loved and that he atoned for in the death of his own son. Find a safe haven, find hope. They give up their their idols and they trust that God alone is to be worshiped and praised. And though he's holy and they should be separated from him, God has made a way in Jesus. And by faith, they believe and they trust in Jesus. And they are willing then to let Jesus change everything about their future. So even if it means their business is to be ruined or they're not to have the same partnerships or they're not to have whatever the world said was good for them, they're willing to give that up because Jesus is better. And so they trust him by faith. Because they believe this Jesus is not like the other gods. What is he? He is God who rose from the dead, declaring victory over it in his resurrection, in his ascension power. One day he will return. He's to be followed, obeyed, loved, known, and enjoyed as you do so together in the church. That's what silently took over Ephesus for about three years until we reach our tipping point. But I want you to see, and this is our concluding thought, You see, it's true. Ephesus has a crazy start. I mean, 12 dudes baptized speaking in tongues. I mean, it has a crazy end. There's this seven sons of Sceva and a riot that we just read about, right? But all that stuff happened at the beginning and the end of three years. What I want to show you that stands today, if you go to Ephesus, you can find... You can find churches, not the church of Ephesus, but you can find churches today in that same area And right now, they're still preaching the gospel. Because look at verse 10 in your Bible as we close. Chapter 19, verse 10 said that this continued. Paul reasoning daily in the synagogue. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, look at verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And now in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1, now Paul, the guy who was responsible for all that crazy stuff, now he's leaving. And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. But you know what stays as Paul leaves? The powerful persuasion. The persuasion of the gospel. The message of the gospel stays. It stays. Preaching, planting, staying, praying, and now leaving a church full of leadership and discipleship. Why? Because God was personally involved in the providential work that Paul was doing. And because while he was doing it, he was committed to this powerful persuasion. Do you see it? To me, this is the encouragement uh, for us. If we believe that gospel, I think it's time for us to practice it here um, at, at RBC in the same way that the saints in Ephesus were to practice it. So may we believe, you know, may we believe in the gospel and may we practice it in such a way, right? We want certain things and we may not have them in the way we want them, but God is in control, amen? And he will get us there. So let's trust him and his providence in our lives. And then like Paul, let's be committed to a powerful message that puts us across the dinner tables with people, people that we know need to give up their worship of Artemis and they need to trust Jesus, right? That's how a city is changed for the sake of the gospel. That's the kind of work that can be done. And when me and you die and we move on, that work continues. And that's our hope. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll, we'll respond. Um, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to recover in our own faith a personal providence like Paul had. Father, keep us from anything that uh, is not in, revealed clearly in your word. Lord, help us to trust uh, your word above all the circumstances of our life. Father, even as we saw Paul tempted to not uh, obey what your spirit had said, um, but God, yet having disciples and having people ready there to help him, God, give us those kind of people. Let us find help as we plan to do what you called us to do. May we trust that your ways really are greater than our ways. God, help us to see that there is a personal providence that gets this missionary of yours in and out of Ephesus. And so Lord, help us to believe that even when we can't see you working it, you are getting us where we are to be. Father, also I pray that you'll help us to have the type of clarity in the meantime that the church and Paul leading it there in Ephesus had. Help us to be powerful in our persuasion. May we see and call men and women in this city that don't know you, Jesus, to give up their own idols and to trust you to trust you by faith, and to join, Lord, your church by, by being uh, born again and repenting of their sins and following Jesus. Lord, help us to believe that you have a great plan. And Lord, help us to not be uh, succumbing to anything that is uh, flashy or, or just not according to your word. God, help us to reject that and help us to instead stay faithful to the gospel as it's been revealed to us, Lord, in your Bible. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the truth, and we pray as we sing now that you'll let, a, let this song be a declaration of what we believe, and then hear our prayers as a church body. In all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.